Hey guys, my name is Abby and welcome to Nearsighted. Quite like that jingle. It's quite nice, isn't it? Hello. I have been sitting on the urge to podcast all day. It's been like absolutely consuming me. I'm recording this on May 3rd, 2022. And I, well, if you didn't know, last night, uh, the majority opinion for Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health was leaked online. And this is a case that the U.S. Supreme Court is currently deliberating. And basically, as the leaked documents show, this case will overturn Roe v. Wade. You've most definitely heard the name Roe v. Wade before, Roe versus Wade. And in case you don't know the details, it was a landmark Supreme Court decision ruled in 1973 that made abortion legal in the first trimester of pregnancy. I really want to talk about this because I once spent over a month of my life basically researching and writing a 20-page paper about the aftermath of this case, specifically the way that the the Catholic Church, like the institution of the Catholic Church in the U.S. reacted to Roe v. Wade. And essentially, TLDR, all you need to know is that the Catholic Church was essentially responsible for creating the national discourse debate on abortion and pretty much responsible for creating what we now know as the quote-unquote pro-life movement. The reason why I say quote-unquote pro-life, not to give the entire game away, but I just don't really want to take that name seriously because words hold a lot of power and this movement has never really been about pro-anyone's life as much as it's been about restricting women's freedoms. You know, this is so devastating for multiple reasons, but I could be sitting here talking about the Met Gala and telling you which celebrities I think don't deserve to be as famous as they are, and boy, wouldn't you want to hear about that, but um, (laughs) this is like quite a story, and definitely one that I never learned about in U.S. history, definitely one that I was never taught, one that uh, I've never heard people talk about before. So I just want to put it out there in whatever way I can. Thank God I have a podcast. This is a really juicy story and not one that you're going to want to miss. So let's do it. Just some background info on this case in the first place. Uh, This case was brought to the court by a woman named Norma McCorvey and... She was challenging uh, Texas's abortion statutes uh, because at the time, abortion was pretty much restricted to instances where the mother's life was in danger, like pretty much no other circumstances. And it's actually really interesting because Norma McCorvey later on became kind of a pro-life champion, a pro-life activist in her Um, later on in life way after this case was announced so interesting bit of trivia but in case you're wondering what the law was behind their decision what allowed them to legalize abortion in the first trimester it was 
the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. So we're talking, I mean, Supreme Court constitutional law. The most important thing you need to know about the 14th Amendment in this case is that it protects an individual's right to privacy. And please bear with me for a second. I know constitutional law can be a little bit of a snooze fest, but when it comes to privacy and constitutional law, the two words you need to know are strict scrutiny. Strict scrutiny. Strict scrutiny is the standard that all laws are subject to when the issue of privacy is at stake. Essentially, what it means is that if the government wants to pass any law that might restrict an individual's right to privacy, they have to have a substantial interest in establishing that law. That basically means that the government's interest has to outweigh the right to privacy. And then once they've established that they have substantial interest in establishing the law, the law has to be the least restrictive law possible. The most important thing to remember about strict scrutiny is that it is an incredibly high bar to meet. It is the highest level of judicial review in the United States. So what does this have to do with abortion? Well, abortion is an issue of privacy, and that means that any laws that restrict abortion must meet this standard. So if if any part of our government, whether it's at the town, the state, the federal level, wants to pass a law that restricts abortion, anyone can challenge this law. Anyone can bring a challenge forward to the courts and this can eventually make it all the way up to the Supreme Court who can eventually essentially decide whether or not this law is valid. When it came to Roe v. Wade, the Texas law basically banned abortion of any form unless it was to save the mother the mother's life and the court at the time which granted was a relatively liberal court actually some people believe it's the last liberal court we've had since then they looked at the statute and they were like well abortion falls under a woman's right to privacy so we have to apply strict scrutiny here <laughs> and basically uh what they were deciding was whether or not the government had a substantial enough interest in restricting abortion uh, and the government's interest was you know essentially the protection of the potentiality of human life so in this case it kind of became a balancing act does the protection of the potential for human life outweigh a woman's right to privacy as we all know they ruled that it doesn't and so the law that was in question did not meet the standard of strict scrutiny. That's all you pretty much need to know for the law in Roe v. Wade. Constitutional law in the U.S. is absolutely nutty. <laughs> but the next time someone clearly doesn't know what they're talking about, whip, whip this out in front of them because you'll definitely know more than them. Here's, in a nutshell, 
what happened after Roe v. Wade. Let me actually set the scene. So it's January 1973. The day that the Supreme Court decides Roe v. Wade is the same day former American president Lyndon B. Johnson, LBJ, passes away. So here's what the New York Times looked like the day after. Big headline, sweeping headline, large photograph. Lyndon B. Johnson, 36th president, is dead. And then right underneath it in smaller text, just as a complete afterthought, high court rules abortion legal in the first three months. What I really want to flag here is that when when Roe v. Wade was first announced, abortion wasn't really a nationally debated issue. Obviously, people talked about it. I, I don't mean to say that no one talked about it at all, but I don't think that in the early 1970s, they would have predicted that it would have been on the scale that it is today. I don't think they would have seen that coming at all. Uh, I think a really good way to illustrate this is that before Roe v. Wade, there was this long-running sitcom called Maud, and they did this episode about they did this episode where the main character Maud decided to receive an abortion and the show portrayed abortion in a very positive light in a way that centered women's liberation and destigmatized the procedure and normalized it and Maud in the episode she's this middle-aged woman she has grandchildren she's married to like her fourth husband or something like that and she finds herself pregnant uh in her late 40s like she's like 47 or something and her daughter carol is like well abortion has been legal in new york the whole time you should just get an abortion like we have the right to decide what we can do with our own bodies it's a simple operation if it's something you want to do you should go for it this also wasn't really a pregnancy that posed any danger to maude's health it was very much so portrayed as a personal choice that involved her own body and it was just for the benefit of her own life. In the year that this episode aired, 64% of Americans supported full liberalization of abortion laws. And what's even crazier was that this same survey found that 56% of Catholics in the U.S. were also supportive of this. So it really seemed that pre-Roe v. Wade, the abortion debate was almost moving in a progressive direction. And it just wasn't really like the politicized, heavily polarizing issue that it is today. Another funny tidbit about the day Roe v. Wade was announced, the president at the time, Richard Nixon, he, he made no comment. Like, like, I don't know if he was asked and he made no comment, but he, he literally never made an announcement about it. He never made a public statement, uh, never a press release. Like he just, he didn't say anything about it. So that really, really paints a picture. Meanwhile, while the rest of the country is like thumbs up for abortion, the Catholic church is like incensed, like outraged. This is the most upset they've been in years. And They've been very upset in the past, but they're like, this is a new level of Catholic church rage. While the rest of the country is like, rest in peace, LBJ, we're going to miss you. These random archbishops in the Catholic church are like 
publishing op-eds in the New York Times every day. And that's not all. I wish that was all they did. They released an official pastoral message where they basically condoned civil disobedience to like any law that had to do with abortion. And they were like, Roe v. Wade was erroneous and unjust and immoral. This was the first time that they had ever allowed Catholics to like not follow the law. This was the first time that they endorsed like not following the law. They doubled down. They threatened to excommunicate any Catholic who received an abortion, any Catholic who was associated with an abortion, any anyone who was who witnessed an abortion. They threatened to excommunicate all of them. They also poured virtually all of their financial resources into this issue. And by the end of the year that Roe v. Wade had come out, they spent $4 million lobbying Congress about abortion issues. That number, by the way, is so wild. It like never fails to get me. I remember when I first came across that fact, I was like, how much money does the Catholic Church have? Because that is, it's $4 million in 1970. It's bizarro. It's absolutely nuts. Think about how much they could have done with that money. Holy shit. Let's just say they were getting their money's worth because whatever they were trying to accomplish, it was really paying off. And they had this uh, secret weapon because they realized that abortion was not just an issue of women's liberation, but they could put a spin on it where rather than restricting the woman's freedom, they were protecting the rights of the unborn fetus. And this is something they hadn't been able to do in the past. They had a long history of opposing the women's liberation movement. Huge shocker there, I know. (laughs) Um, No, but seriously, they were super anti-contraception in the 60s. And it never really got any traction because it was very obvious what they were trying to do. They were like, oh, women can't have freedom over their own bodies. They can't make their own decisions. So it never got anywhere. But then they took on this whole new perspective and things were looking up. Things were working for them. I think a really good anecdote to illustrate this shift after Roe v. Wade, this priest went across the country cross-country road trip (laughs) where he preached to women's groups across the country obviously against abortion and uh he was preaching to this one group and this woman raised her hand and she was like have you ever been pregnant and he looked her dead in the eyes like not even blinking and he was like no but i have been a fetus I love high school papers, especially high school history writing, because you have to interpret everything, which which sometimes just means like stating the very obvious. So at this point in my paper, when I brought in this quote, I followed it up by saying, the priest's comment entirely disregarded the female experience, immediately shifting the focus of abortion to the lives of the unborn. The male Catholic church leaders who had insisted on spearheading the anti-abortion movement could not claim abortion as their own experience. Yet by adopting the right to life argument, they suggested that abortion was not fully a woman's experience either. 
This was a significant development that allowed the church to more effectively spread its message. Okay, never mind. That was actually <laughs> was kind of good. <laughs> it was kind of good, clear, lucid, clearly articulated analysis. Go 17-year-old Abby. Uh, but no, it's true. That uh, effectively just sums up this new edge that they found. I feel really bad for women who are part of this quote-unquote pro-life movement because this movement was never for them in the first place. Even within the Catholic Church, it wasn't for them. It was pretty much exclusively spearheaded by the men who were in the hierarchy of the organization. During this time period, Catholic women were were not really a big part of this effort to overturn Roe v. Wade. There was actually a group called Catholics for Free Choice, CCFC or something like that. And it was a group of Catholic women who, as, as the name of the organization suggests, they were Catholics for a free choice. They would show up at anti-women's liberation rallies, anti-abortion rallies, and they would counter protest or they would hold events of their own. They would spread resources. And they actually, I think they ended up running an ad in the LA Times, something like that, about how it was unfair for one religious group to control half the population's decision making. Sadly, this was a very short-lived group organization movement and I'll tell you why. Surprise, surprise. Once again, it was because the men of the Catholic Church, they uh, they were like cease and desist. And they essentially shut the entire thing down. This is not to say that at the time there weren't Catholic women who were like, rah, rah, I hate all women. Like the March to or no, what is it? The March for Life. The, the March for Life, which still takes place yearly, uh, they held the first one the year after Roe v. Wade, and there were only, like, 6,000 people there. And, like, they were like, New York Times, Washington Post, come look at this march that we're holding. And the New York Times was like, this was a demonstration um, just because it wasn't a super big deal. But the person who spearheaded this, like, March to Life was a woman, a Catholic woman, and... So I think that was kind of like the start of the downfall. They got to the women. The thing that is so fascinating to me about abortion as a political issue in the 1970s was that it just gained traction so exponentially. And it wasn't an even growth. It was super disproportionate. It was like exclusively catholic church for the longest time catholic church and then people who joined their movement and the other thing that i i want to emphasize about this was that it wasn't about the number of people who were involved in this movement it was about the intensity and the passion of the select few who decided to make this their life's work the presidential election after roe v wade which was the one where jimmy carter was elected NBC sent out this survey where they had voters rank issues uh, based on importance. So like number one would be the first thing you consider when selecting a president. And then number 12 would be like the least important. And overwhelmingly, abortion was at 
the bottom of most people's lists, NBC reported. Yet, the zeal, passion, and aggressiveness of those who did consider abortion very important had assured the issue's impact on the presidential election. So this was approximately around 1976. We're like halfway through the decade, about three years out from Roe v. Wade. Catholic Church has been lobbying, lobbying, lobbying. People have been protesting, protesting. Millions of dollars are flying out of the stained glass windows of the cathedrals. And um, this kind of marks the first election where abortion actually plays a role. Is it something that everyone cares about? No. But is it something that a few people care about a lot? Yes. And that's kind of really where it starts to take off. During Jimmy Carter's presidency, this movement really starts to get violent. And I think the behavior they exhibit during this era is like kind of what we associate with them today. I actually opened my paper about this news story that I found about a decade after Roe v. Wade was announced. It was a news story about how the FBI received this ransom note from a group of Catholics who called themselves the Army of God, and they claimed responsibility for abducting an abortion doctor and his wife from their home. Like they, they broke into this doctor's house and kidnapped and held hostage two adults. They also carried out a chain of bombings, arsons, and just attacks on various abortion clinics and doctors across the entire country. This is where we really see the impact of the language that leaders in the church were using. It was the rhetoric that we associate with this movement today. It's dramatic. It's exaggerated. It's hyperbolic. They compare uh, abortion with the Holocaust. They, they compare it with genocide. Like, it's fucking crazy. And the radicalization of language feeds into the radicalization of behavior. Violent language spurs physical violence. The entire decade culminated with the election of Ronald Reagan. The Catholic Church played a huge role in getting Reagan elected. They endorsed him. All of the smaller organizations, the offshoots that had been uh, opposing women's liberation, endorsed him. He was their candidate. He was super aligned with them on the issue of abortion. He actually uh, wrote and published a book called Abortion and the Conscience of Nation, uh, which is crazy. Like, uh, an American president published a book about abortion. Anyway, to summarize, ultimately, Roe v. Wade incited the male Catholic Church hierarchy to take action against abortion with unparalleled passion and determination. In the years following Roe, male church leaders disproportionately affected the abortion debate. Qualities that drive the modern-day, quote-unquote, pro-life movement, such as the rationale of preserving unborn life, heavy politicization, radical rhetoric, 
language, physical violence, Catholic ideals, and just polarization in every sense that you can think of. All of these qualities can be traced back to the actions of the Catholic Church in the 1970s. I recently read On Difference and Dominance by Catherine McKinnon. Catherine McKinnon is an American legal scholar and law professor. In the essay that I read, she talks about these two different approaches to resolving gender inequality. The first approach is the difference approach. And it's called the difference approach because it basically means that you create policies and laws that compensate women for the inequalities that they experience by being different from men. The second approach is called the dominance approach. And rather than compensating women for their differences, it just focuses on recognizing male dominance. And it very much so views gender as a construction, something that's not real, something that's been labeled and categorized to basically preserve the current hierarchy of male dominance. And by the way, when I say male dominance, I'm obviously referring to the categorization of men who are currently in power, like obviously cisgender men. Bear with me, it's very difficult to say this concisely while also being nuanced with my language. Essentially, Catherine McKinnon argues that as long as we're like compensating ourselves for being different to men, we are still centering men. Because yes, women are kind of leveling the playing field, but at the same time, men are just getting everything that women have to fight for just because they're men. Like they they get everything by default. Being male is like this sense of original entitlement. It's like no surprise that I obviously agree with McKinnon. Her whole point is that we have to focus less on resolving differences and more on eliminating male dominance. Anyways, I bring all of this up because it has felt to me like issues of pregnancy are always going to be treated as issues of difference. Whenever we do that, we are upholding the current hierarchy. If you really think about it, we always see pregnancy as something that hinders women. We've never seen it. We've never viewed it as something that men lack. We don't hold it against men that they can't get pregnant. They can't gestate and push children out of their vaginas. Like they can't bring life into this world. And it blows my mind that we have never held that against men. Now, do I think that's the solution? No, but it's it just shows you that like we see, we see it as an obstacle to women and that's because like we center the male experience. I think I think what I'm trying to say is that the world is like literally everything about the world is built and systematized to keep men where they are. The whole reason why we have to label gender is so that 
you can assign someone a difference from the norm, which is being a cisgender man. It's like, hey, let me put you in this category and then allot you however many rights I think you deserve based on how far off you are from the cisgender male norm and based on how much of a threat you pose to the current status quo. Gay people, you're a threat. People who don't conform to the gender binary, you're a threat. Talking about Roe v. Wade, abortion rights, seeing people's social media posts about like who to call and what to sign and what to do, it like ugh, my mind it just like races and it's so it's nice to talk about this notion of eliminating the current power structure of establishing like a dominance free happy gay world but it's like how the fuck do we actually do that you know what i mean restricting abortion is not about preserving the potential for human life it is about preserving male dominance it always has been and always will be the catholic church when they were creating this movement in the words of dua lipa they did a full 180 they went to being like women can't get contraception because we don't want women to live the same lives as us to like women can't get abortions because we care about fetuses like that is the greatest pr stunt of all time one last thing before i go um on a very ironic note when (laughs) when i actually chose this paper topic it was like 2018 spring of 2018 I remember even like telling people, I was like, I have a paper topic. And they were like, what is it? And I was like, it's Roe v. Wade. And I like literally went around explaining to people what Roe v. Wade was because we just weren't talking about it back then. And I never would have realized that this is something that that we'd actually talk about. It's been really, really interesting sitting on this paper that I wrote four years ago and watching it become more and more relevant over the years. If you made it all the way to the end and you liked what you heard, please share. Uh, Talk to your friends and your family. Spread the word. I would love to get more listeners in. Thank you so much. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day, afternoon, night, morning, whenever it is you're listening to this. And I'll see you in the next one. Okay. Bye.